Wow, Mother's Day three years ago. I was just a young lad then. Um, that we first walked in the doors of this place and met the people at our Coastlands Vineyard. And, and Sarah and I, we were just immediately thinking, who are these people? And I don't mean that as an equivocation. Like, this is the most unique gift I've ever got. Like, we really, we just were blown away at the love and embrace and acceptance. Um, some of you know this story, but I think the very next Sunday I had to go speak somewhere. I was in Colorado or something, and I, I called Sarah Sunday lunchtime. And I was like, oh, what are you doing? And she said, oh, we're, me and the boys are walking home from church. And I was like, sure you are. <laughs> and she's like, no, really? And I was like, what church did you go to? And she said, oh, I went back to that one at Del Mar, Coastlands. And um, some of you got to meet Jeff Pratt a few, uh, about a month ago, right? And he taught here, but... So we were telling Jeff the story um, a few weeks after that, and his response was, whoa, Aslan is on the move. <laughs> because Sarah Fela went to church of her own volition <laughs> without her husband. Revival is coming <laughs> to the nation. <laughs> um, what did you say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on. Um, we, so part of what I was doing here was just kind of when I stepped up here, I was just being, feeling a little nostalgic. And we're going to have a little kind of a nostalgic morning, actually. Um, I'm going to take a little deviation from our series on living loved, and we're going to go back in a little bit to a series, the very first message, actually, that I did here at Coastlands. And then we're going to go a layer deeper into it, and I'm really excited about it. Um, but before we get into that, hi again, welcome. And we have some awesome goodies that were left over. This is Brent Taylor's contribution to our morning, are these awesome snacks and some really pristine cupcakes. Um, do we have any kids left in here? Okay. So <laughs> what we're going to do, I'm going to do a little bait and switch on you. What we're going to have you do is we're going to have the kids deliver cupcakes to the women. And so um, we'll, we'll take a break. Let's actually do that during the break. But um, so our dear friend Christy, again, happy Mother's Day. Would you please open your Bibles to Proverbs 31? <laughs> That's a church joke. I'm sorry. Uh, so Sarah and I were talking, Sarah and I were talking the other day about what did you, where is she at? Didn't you try it in your women's Bible study, like your mom's group? I should call it mom's group, right? Didn't you guys look at Proverbs 31 at some point? The one time you looked at the Bible, right? And they, they looked at Proverbs 31, and the general consensus was what? Exhaustion? Guilt? <laughs> like, yeah. It was just like, are you serious? Um, women, are you familiar with Proverbs 31? We're not going to go into Proverbs 31. The, the misconception about Proverbs 31 is, am I too loud? I feel, I feel too loud. Um, hey, Mike, do you want to just turn me off or just mute me or no? Uh, just bring it down to like a two. Let's bring it down a little. Um, so what happened? Oh, so Mother's Day, Proverbs 31. And the misconception around Proverbs 31 is that that's like 
scripture's ideal of what one woman's life should look like, right? Isn't that how it's portrayed to us? It's like, all right, this is the Proverbs 31 woman, and she like sews her own sheets for her 12 children um, while she is nursing three babies somehow, and (laughs) she is giving donations to the Salvation Army while she's managing the Salvation Army store, and there's like all these things that she's doing, and you're like, how could one person do that? And so moms read that, and they're just exhausted just reading it, right? Um, the thing about Proverbs 31 is it's, it's not a Proverbs 31 woman. It's traits that godly women can embody. But it's not a description of what one woman's life should look like. Just to take a little bit of the pressure off. But what I think would be fun at some point let me ask you, let's, let's do a little experimental thing real quick. Um, imagine in another life that this guy that wrote Proverbs 31 had also written Proverbs 32 about the next day in the woman's life after Proverbs 31. What might that look like? Any thoughts? What, what would Proverbs 32 say if we, if we had the scriptural liberty? What would it be a picture of? What's that? <laughs> right. Some woman on the couch watching The Bachelorette, right, with, with like eight empty cans of five-hour energy <laughs> that didn't make it to the recycling. <laughs> right. Another Lazarus story, right? Yeah, so, hey, women, you're doing a good job. Moms, I see you, many of you at least. You're doing a good job. This is my mom, by the way. How cool is that? Thank you for birthing me. It's nice to have life. Happy Mother's Day. Um, Okay, we're not going to look at Proverbs 31. So I told you that I'm shifting gears a little bit. I just couldn't resist saying that. But So I wanted to go back. Over the last two years, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, I've presented some ideas that some of you are like, that's interesting. And some ideas you're like, that's cool. And some ideas that you're like, that's weird. But the thing is, as we move forward together, I think it's very important that we take time every once in a while to go back and look at the frame out of which we're operating. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back momentarily to the very first message I ever gave here at Coastlands. Um, This was before the preach-off. And um, this was not the preach-off one. This was the very first time Cody asked me to teach. And I was like, well, I may as well just put this out there. I want people to know kind of where I'm coming from. So we played a little bit in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And... We're going to do that again, but we're going to go to another layer with it this morning, and we're going to highlight a certain person. And and we just happen to have almost everybody here this morning that participated in that, which is perfect. So, where's Adrian at? Okay, remind me. Will you indicate to me before I get too far in? Um, We have a story that Adrian's going to share with us in a little bit that really highlights what I felt like we needed to talk about this morning. So, just remind me, because I sometimes get a little caught up in things. So, please. You can just like put your hand up or throw something at me or whatever. 
So what we did, I realized that most of my life growing up, I had a certain understanding of God. And uh, Richie, is it a Lego, gentlemen? Okay, so this was... This was the understanding of God that I had kind of grown up with. And I don't know if anybody could relate to that, but how many of you, at least at some point in your life, you found yourself in a time of worship where when someone mentions God, if there's a mental image attached to God, especially God the Father, some, a non-Lego version of this surfaces in your imagination. Would anybody say that? Yeah. And so over the last six or seven years of my life, it's been this journey of exercising this version of God out of my mind so that my mind comes around to the Christian picture of God, which is really hard work, I find. For some reason, my mind always wants to go back to this. I actually didn't. I should have brought it, but my mom actually gave me a uh, legit Lego Jesus at one point. And I'll bring that for you at some point because it's really, really cool. But... um, the problem is when we in the Western world, anybody here heard of a guy named Leslie Newbegin? A guy named Leslie Newbegin? He's a British missiologist and theologian. He lived in India for about 40 years, and so his worldview is quite vast. But he said this, he said, the Western conception of God, when most people in the Western world think of God, they think of a lonely, solitary, male, bearded figure. Would anybody disagree with that? That's kind of the default, Right? And so every once in a while, we need to remind ourselves, we need to go back to what is the scriptural picture of God? And um, so we don't have Skip here, but what we did, what we did a few years ago, three years ago, I guess, is um, we had some visual portrayals of, of this story, and I shared the story of scripture as I had first heard it, or as I had come to know it, and then the story that I was discovering. And uh, Lance, right? Dude. I know it's your first time here. (laughs) I'm going to put you on the spot, but you don't have to do anything except sit in that throne and look bearded. Are you up for that? Okay. (laughs) So friends, this is Lance. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to put mud in his face or anything like that. Um, For those of you that were there for that. Um, so you're getting off easy this time, actually, my man. <laughs> um, so, so for the sake of argument, Lance is our God figure in our mind, right? We're singing worship songs, and somehow this Lego God or this bearded God just kind of comes up in our mind. And as we look back to the very beginning of the story of, of Lance's role in the world, right, we find, and, and we often ask this, so play along if, if you uh, have been here before, but if you haven't, then let me ask you. Wouldn't it be important to think about the very first thing the Bible ever tells us about God? If we're going to go back to, if we're going to try to figure out what the God of Christianity is really like, one of the important questions to ask would be, well, what is the first thing the Bible tell us about God? Wouldn't you say? So what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you say, what does the Bible tell us about God, right off the bat? Come on. It starts with a C, right? That in the beginning, God created. That this God is creative. That God creates, okay? So in our story, we have a creative God that for most, I don't know if this is true about you, but the way that it was kind of indicated to me in the beginning of my walking with God life 
was that the reason this God created, now there's a few different reasons we hear for this. One reason is what? That we've been created to worship God, right? Who's heard that before? We've been created to worship God. Is that true or not true? Don't answer that. I'm not backing you in a corner. Um, it's true, but is that the whole story? Other reasons that we hear, um, I've actually heard this before. The reason God created was because God was lonely. Has anybody heard that before? Hmm. Isn't that interesting? That the reason God created was because God was lonely. Now, this would make a lot of sense, actually, wouldn't it? How are you feeling up here? <laughs> How you doing over there, Lance? <laughs> yeah. You're perfect for this. You need to come around more often. Um, so in God's loneliness, in this G-O-D's loneliness, he decides to create. And so he creates this gentleman, this human, whose name in English translates, this is your part, my man. Come on up. All right, I'm going to need to speed this part of the story up because I, I just really have fun doing this. But So, all right, we're going we're gonna to hit fast forward on this, okay, for the sake of what this is. So God creates Adam, realizes that Adam is lonely. For some reason, there's something broken in this creation, which doesn't make sense in this frame, but that is God looks at Adam and says it's not good for man to be alone which is weird. Why would God say that if God had known loneliness? I guess maybe God had experience in loneliness? Interesting. So God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. I will make a, and this is really where we're going to have some fun this morning, I will make a what? A helper. Ooh, women, how many of you cringe? We're going to talk about that this morning, but not yet. All right, helpers? Um, mm. I'm so sorry. You will not leave here throwing things at me, women, I promise, sisters. Yeah. Franny's like, <laughs> I'm going to end up with like a pin sticking out of my neck. <laughs> Franny, do you have kung fu training? <laughs> um, so it is not good for man to be alone for some reason. I guess God knows from experience, loneliness. So God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will create a helper. I will create an errand for him. How perfect. <laughs> we'll let them have their little moment. <laughs> um, so, sad news in the midst of the smiles. These two are moving away from us in about a month and a half, two months. So, don't stay too sad yet, but I just wanted you to be aware of that, how fun this is that they're able to be here and do this again before you guys go, because this is my first real memory with him. I didn't even know them. <laughs> And I was like, hey, uh, your name's Adam, right? Come on up. So um, we will have time to give them a proper goodbye and send off and everything. But they're moving up to Seattle, and they have some fun things going on soon. But, so God creates Adam and Aaron. And the next thing we know, there's some trees that God talks to Adam and Aaron about. Perfect. Speeding up our story. And God says, don't eat from one of those trees. It'll be bad news for you. You'll die. And somehow enters this talking lizard. Do you have a volunteer to be our... <laughs> hey, no comment, any of you. <laughs> no. <laughs> you guys, keep your, keep your comments to yourselves. 
you get to come and you get to entice her. Oh no. You get to en- I'm so, not good at enticing women. <laughs> I don't believe that. Um, <laughs> so okay, Chris, keep moving us forward. Move us forward. Um, so, so this Geico gecko, this lizard, this crafty, subtle, talking lizard comes and entices Aaron into eating this fruit. And go ahead, and it can be quick, yeah. So, so, so she, she eats the avocado, or what did we say it was? Isn't that what? Yeah, she eats the pomegranate. And the next thing we know, she gives a bite to her man who's standing there passive. Sorry, gentlemen. Um, she gives a bite to her man, and we... I guess find is not the right word. We realize that we have a, an omniscient God walking through a garden asking a question, where are you to Adam and Eve? Because Adam and Eve are all of a sudden, I don't know where you're going to do this, but you're hiding. Good luck with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, and to really fast forward our story, because it had told us in Genesis 2, the last verse says that they, the man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed. Don't. Just, yeah. uh, <laughs> they were naked and they were not ashamed and so they had learned some craftiness from the gecko who was crafty and they took fig leaves and so interesting little, little fun side note so they took fig leaves and tried to cover themselves right and do you remember when Jesus is walking towards the temple on the way to his death? He stops and he curses something. And everybody's like, that's really random. Why on earth would he do that? What does he stop and curse on his way to the temple? A fig tree. Fig trees represented for them the religious institution. But what was the initial use of the fig leaf in our scriptural story? And what has been the perpetual use of religion? for eons and eons and eons. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus is so smart. So they use a fig leaf, and they try to cover themselves, and I'm sure it's inadequate, and God sees it's inadequate, but will not go there. And because this God is holy and cannot dwell in the presence of sin, as the story goes, God is forced to punish them for their sin and kick them out of the garden. And then the story just kind of goes on, and that's why we need Jesus to come and Bridge the gap, right, so that we can be back in God's presence. How many of you have heard a version of the story that goes something like that? Okay. Could we have a few minutes to look at that story from another angle? And then see what it might have to do with Mother's Day and highlight a certain character in the story. Let's do that. So you'll be out of here by two, I promise. Um, feel free to leave at any time. Hey, by the way, no, just so you know, you can feel free to get up, get snacks, use the restroom. Don't feel locked into your seat. But you're not going, oh, yeah, are you going to, not you, you're, you're a prop right now. Um, <laughs> you've always had that kind of relationship, haven't you? So, so that's the story as it's often told. Can we rewind and hone in on a different word and start with, a different starting point and see how it reframes our story? Okay. <laughs> Where did this guy come from? <laughs> I 
I am getting like just drawn into his ways right now. Um, so Adam and Aaron, would you take a seat just for a moment? We're going to have you back in a minute. But So what if it's not actually true that the first thing the Bible tells us about God is that God is creator? What if the first thing the Bible tells us about God is actually that in the beginning God was relationship? Because John chapter 1 actually comes before Genesis 1, doesn't it? In the beginning, not God created. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And so the first thing the Bible tells us about God is that God is Father and Son. And that there's a Spirit present there. And so we need Beth, right? You're one of them. You can stay up here for contrast purposes. (laughs) So Beth, Eric was here, but Eric is uh, having his birthday today, and he decided not to celebrate with us, so you can punch him later. Um, so can I have two more people? We have, in the beginning, the Word, and the Father, and the Holy Spirit. So don't be shy, come on. Two more people. Huh? No. He's different. He's contrast. He's the Gandalf with an attitude, God. Um, come on. For the sake of time, two more people. Come on. Michael, right? Okay. It was two women and Eric. Which is, it was you and Cindy and Eric. Um, so, I won't make you do this, but can I tell you something cool about the word with? In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Actually, it says it the other way. The word was with God, and the word was God. That word with in Greek doesn't just mean like sitting next to or shoulder to shoulder or side by side. But with is this word pros, which literally means face-to-face and intimate communion and connection. So in the beginning, the word was face-to-face with the Father in intimate communion and connection. That's the very first thing the Bible tells us about God. And that's found in the Hebrew as well. In Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, Elohim. You familiar with that term? In the beginning, Elohim created. Elohim is a plural noun. If we translated it accurately in English, it would say, in the beginning, God's created. Actually, it would say, in the beginning, God's create. It's plural noun with singular verb, because they're trying to mess with language of plurality and singularity all in one, and they don't really have the language to do it, just like we don't. You sound like Gollum. Like, in the beginning, they create. And it's just weird. You don't know how to do it. But So there's plurality there. And it says, in the beginning, this God, this three-in-one God, created. Now, would this God be lonely if this is the reality that the Bible tells us God is? So there has to have been a different reason that this God would create Adam and Eve. And the reason I would propose is the same reason that most parents have children. It's not to do the dishes for them and to take out the trash and do chores. Um, But it's actually because there's so much love in that relationship, that there needs somewhere else for the overflow of that love to land. Love, by definition, multiplies and expands, doesn't it? And at some point we'll go into Ephesians 1, which actually talks all about that. That from the very beginning, the plan in the Trinity's heart was to adopt creation into this family through Jesus. I wish we had time just to land there forever, but we don't. Because we have a woman to talk about. So this Father and Word and Spirit, they decide to create Adam. 
And Adam gets to name all the creatures, and I don't know how long that takes, but it's the sense of taking dominion over the creatures. It's the sense of leadership. Adam's created in the image of God, but God says it's not good for Adam, this human, to be alone. I will create a helper suitable for him. And so along comes this helper. And so once again, we have this crafty serpent that walks along and entices them to eat from the tree. So you can eat again, and you, you can even do it from a distance now. It's like ESP, right? Uh, just like puts the thought in their mind. doesn't even have to move. They eat, and they're hiding. We know this story. Mm. As soon as we jump into the scriptures, it's going to take a lot more time. Um, you guys know that this is, the stuff is there. So, God, Elohim, is walking through the garden and says, where are you? Because there's been this breach in the relationship after they eat. And the answer that Adam and Aaron give to why they're hiding is what? We were, we were ashamed because we discovered we were naked and so we were afraid. And so what had happened, obviously, as soon as they ate from this tree, whatever fruit it was, shame entered their being, the sense of doubt, anxiety, insecurity, and shame, which caused them to believe that this God was the kind of God that needs to be hidden from. Right? You notice they aren't hiding from each other, are they? They're together hiding from God. And so shame put this thing in their mind that says God needs to be hidden from. Essentially what had happened was shame had distorted their lenses towards who God was and God's intentions for them. Shame never does anything like that, does it? You make a mistake, you do something really stupid, and shame rises up, and the first thing you think is like, oh, let me go talk to God about that. Sure. So much to say, so little time. So their lenses now have been distorted. I'm not going to like write on your glasses, but that would be fun if I did um, with a Sharpie. But, so their lenses have been distorted and they aren't seeing God clearly because shame has become the filter through which they see. Which, by the way, I think, so as God tries to draw near throughout all of Scripture, what happens when God tries to draw near to them? What's the response? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Moses, you go up to the mountain because we don't want to be with God. We're terrified. We're not worthy. We're not this. We're not that. Um, one of my friends once said, it's not that God can't look upon sin. It's that sin and shame can't look upon God. And that's where Adam and Eve found themselves. And so they've eaten from the tree of life, or I mean from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's still this tree in the garden. And it's this tree of life. Now, most of the story that we hear is that God kicked them out because God needed to punish them for their sin, right? Question for you. If Adam and Eve decided in their shameful state, covered in fig leaves, to eat from the tree of life, what might happen? They would never die. And what state would they live forever in? in a state of sin and shame and anxiety. Is it possible, some of you have heard me say this, but maybe, I don't know, I always need reminded, is it possible that the reason that Elohim kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden was not to punish them for their disobedience, 
but to protect them from themselves and the tree of life? You know that Scripture actually says that? Scripture actually says, Now that the man has become like one of us, lest they reach out their hands and eat from the tree of life. So it says God removed them from the garden. And by the way, that whole thing about sin separates us from God and we can't be in God's presence. The very next chapter, we have God talking to Cain and Abel. God relating to, connecting with Cain and Abel. Interesting, did God bring Cain and Abel back in the garden or did God follow them out of the garden and continue to pursue them in relationship? This is very important stuff. A.W. Tozer once said, the most important thing about a person is what they believe about God. Um, one other quick side note. So this God comes and sees that they've put fig leaves on to try to cover their shame, and what happens? What does God do? God covers them with something. Do you remember? An animal skin. Where would God get an animal skin? From a live animal? Is the animal like alive sitting there? Like, awkward. <laughs> kind of like holding this dog by its tail. Like. So something had to die to cover their shame. How many of you thought that the sacrificial system was there because God needed death to be made happy again? Or how many of you have heard that? That the sacrificial system was in place because God needed to be appeased by death. But isn't it interesting that the very first sacrifice of an animal wasn't so that God could be made happy, but so that human shame could be covered? That might be important. See how much fun you can have just in Genesis 2 and 3? It's like, we need about three years to do this. We're going to go through a series. Genesis 1 will finish in March of 2017. Maybe if we take shortcuts. You see how loaded this is? But do you see how distorted often our understanding of God becomes? And so we have this loving Elohim that says, look it, I'm going to cover your shame because you don't know how to do that. By the way, I believe that this is the ultimate reason Jesus had to become human. It was because we refused to let God into our lives because of our shame. And so Jesus had to step into and experience our shame. The very same chapter in John that we just referenced, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. Later says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, tabernacled among us. In other words, the word Jesus had to step into our experience of humanity so that he could replace our death with his life. Yowzers, let's spend the next millennia meditating on that. So what I wanted to jump to, are you guys all okay up here? No? <laughs> you guys Okay. We need to take a few minutes before we look at this. Actually, no. Let's, let's go here real quick, okay? For the sake of time. It is not good for the man to be alone. So the reason we did all this is just to frame our story. Now the sermon really starts. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we needed this background. We need this setup. We need to set the stage so we understand what we're looking at. In the beginning was all of this. And God looks at Adam, and it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, women, how many of you feel really honored by being called a helper? What other words would you often say kind of get thrown around when it talks about the role of women? What are, what are some words? I'm, I'm 
please don't make me regret this. No, but we need to go here. Um, what are some of the words thrown around in church circles in regards to the role of women? Wow, that was like in unison. Submission. Women, how good are you at, at the submission thing? <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> right. Oh, man, we, we need to turn this into a series. Um, Ephesians 5, there's a big mistranslation in Ephesians 5, that whole line about um, wives submit to your husbands. Yeah. Go look for the word submit there in the Greek. Look for a direct translation of the word submit in the Greek from Ephesians 5. If you can find it, come tell me. And I'll give you a reward. I bet you can't. Chris, why are you doing this? Um, submission. What did you say, Laura? The what? The weaker vessel. <laughs> did Beth just vomit in her mouth? <laughs> What, other, what are some of the other words that get thrown around that get attached to women, femininity, to females in, in the church? Help mate, right? Which, gets, which is another translation for this. Suitable, suitable helper. Okay. Anything else? We should be silent. Delicate. Yeah, silence. We need to go into some of this stuff at some point, don't we? Some of these passages. Yeah. Um, it just makes me sad. It just makes me really sad. Silent, delicate, was that what you said? Yeah, you're so delicate, Betsy. You just like this fragile little flower? <laughs> um, do I have a psalm in there, Richie? Can I, real quick, yeah, so go back really fast uh, to this. So the words in Hebrew, the words in Hebrew for suitable helper, the word helper is this word ezer. In English, in Roman characters, we'd write it E-Z-E-R. Ezer. Suitable would be this word that kind of looks like konegdo. We don't know. I mean, it's Hebrew, so they don't have the vowels and stuff that we have, but it's like konegdo. Um, the best way to tell you what ezer, konegdo, really means is to let Adrian briefly tell her story from yesterday. Um, I don't know if you, can you do it briefly? I mean, like two minutes, three minutes? Yeah. This is Adrian. So, thank you, Adrian. When Mark told me about that this morning, he, he basically said Adrian was able to save someone's life yesterday. And... That's incredible. I hope I'm never in that position because I don't think I would, I don't have the training. I'm, oh man, imagine if you weren't there. Who knows? The word ezer, one of the best translations of the word ezer into English from Hebrew is the word lifesaver or rescuer. Is that on par with helper?
Would you like to see the word Ezer used another place in Scripture? Psalm 124.8. Our deliverer. Another translation says our rescuer is the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. The word Ezer that's used of Eve in Genesis 2, we will make a helper suitable, is the same Hebrew word used to describe God when God comes to rescue Israel with strength and power in times of despair and challenge. Women, does that resonate with any of you a little bit more? That maybe there's more to you than tradition has maybe been willing to give? To tread lightly, but not lightly enough? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and this word, let's go back really quick, Richie. This word suitable, probably the best translation of this word suitable would be counterpart, equal, right on par with. So in other words, I will create for him a powerful, rescuing, equal. Because without her, his life is not good. Can I just ask, women, how many of you, this is the first time you've heard what Ezer, or what help me, really means? Wow. How many of you feel like we've stumbled upon something that resonates more with who you are? Anyone? Some of our, one second, Lord. Some of our single friends might be like, well, what about me? Hey, guess what? Single girls, if God from the very beginning said that you are a powerful, equal, rescuing lifesaver, does that mean you have to wait till you get married to have something to give the world? I submit that it does not. Will you go with me into one more thing real quick just to drive this home a little bit further? And I don't have time to do it justice, but um, will you just trust me on this until we have time to go deeper into it? It's often understood or believed that as soon as Adam and Eve eat and God finds out what happened, that God goes into this rant cursing and giving the, punishing basically the serpent, right? And um, Eve and then Adam. Wouldn't you say? God curses Adam, curses the serpent, and curses Eve. Without having time to go into that too much, can I just put, let me just do this. I'm just going to put a thought out there for you to think about, and we'll find some time to go back to it. God actually never punishes or pronounces curses on any of them. But if you look at the wording, God says, because you have blank, this will happen. God actually simply describes the consequences of their actions. God says, Adam, because you decided to do this, you're going to work really, really hard to make your living, and you're going to find your identity in what you produce, not in me, where your true identity is found. 
which is, Adam's the only guy that's ever done that, right? We talked about that. What's interesting is that when God addresses Eve, God does not actually express, do you want to look at this? If you're, this is in Genesis 3, if you want to look at this real quick. God doesn't actually pronounce any kind of curse. God simply says, I will blank. Somebody want to open up to that for us? I have a few Bibles up here. because. Are you with me still? Are you having a good Mother's Day yet? You forced to be reckoned with? Forces to be reckoned with, my aunt would. <laughs> Let's look just really quickly at what God says to Eve, because this brings it kind of full circle. Genesis 3, this is when keynotes are good. Adrian, I'm borrowing your Bible. Thank you. You are a lifesaver. So in Genesis 3, verse... Well, in verse 15, God says that God is going to put hostility between the serpent and the woman. Is God punishing Eve for hanging out with the serpent? If, how many of you dads have a daughter in here? Dads with daughters? So, dads with daughters, if your daughter comes home from a date with a black eye from some dude, and you say, you can't see him again, how many of your daughters are going to go, why are you punishing me? Are you punishing or protecting? And God tells the serpent, I'm going to put a wall between you and this serpent. God promises protection to Eve from the very one that tried to do all this damage. It's not a curse at all. It's not a punishment at all. Actually, God promises that Eve will be the one that will be the life giver and the one that, through whom the promise will come of the defeat of the serpent. But that's for another time. This is an interesting translation. Basically, in verse 16, it says, God said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. You will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Okay, what am I getting myself into here? <laughs> what am I thinking? There are actually people that believe that it's not okay for women to have epidurals during childbirth. Because they believe that biblically, God's desire is that women experience pain in childbirth. People actually believe that. <laughs> Let me just say this for the sake of time, and then we're going to see how we pray for each other. That word pain in the first part that God says to Eve, the word pain actually is the same word used when God speaks to Adam and says, you will toil and the earth will not work with you. 
So a better translation of you will have pain in childbearing is actually, I will increase your hard work and your childbearing. God doesn't say, I will increase your pain in childbearing. It actually says, I will increase your hard work and your childbearing. Wait, what? You think Adam and Eve were together in the garden for a little while? Naked? How many kids did they have? While they were still in the garden, how many kids did they have that we know of? Wow. Did they really not discover that? Um, <laughs> if, I just, if I just allow an awkward pause, will you understand where I'm going? <laughs> so the translation is, I will increase your work and your conception. In other words, God apparently changes the way conception happens on the other side of shame entering the world. Look at some of the translations. I will increase your hard work, your toil, and your conception. In other words, you're going to have more babies. Women, the more kids you have, what comes with more kids? More work. <laughs> wow. That's an in- well, Thank you for that, Chris. <laughs> that was a gift to you. That, was <laughs> that insight, you can credit me for that. I will increase your work and your conception. And then you know what it says? And then it says, and in pain you will bring forth children. Guess what? That word pain has nothing to do with physical pain. The word is in sorrow. It's an emotional kind of pain. In sorrow you will bring forth children. So you know what's kind of weird? First of all, God never puts pain on Eve in any form, contrary to what we often hear. Not only does God never put pain on Eve, God doesn't say, I want you to be sorrowful. If you have a baby into a dysfunctional situation, how's that going to work out for you? What's going to come with that? Emotional pain, right? Can I tell you what this makes me think? It's almost as if while God is telling the serpent, this is what's going to happen to you, and it's not going to be good, and while God is telling Adam, this is what's going to happen to you, and it's not going to be good, God actually turns to Eve and entrusts her with more responsibility because there's something that she has that God believes in. God says, I'm going to actually help you be fruitful and multiply and cover the earth because I believe that you have what it takes. Some of you might think that's a stretch of the translations, but take a look at those things because God never puts pain or trouble or consequence on Eve. God entrusts her with the gift of bringing more life into the Okay, I feel like we need to stop there. (laughs) See you next Sunday. (laughs) Um, Two thoughts on that real quick. The word desire, your desire will be for your husband. A better translation for that would be your turning will be towards your husband. 
your turning will be towards your husband. Now, in the description, we talked about this at one point. In the description of what God says to Adam, God says you're going to turn towards the work of your hands, right? Adam came from the dust of the ground, or so he thought. And so where did he turn? For a sense of identity. Just as men, we look for the things that we produce, the things that we accomplish to find our identity and not in where we come from. Where do women most often find their identity? In their relationships. Not always, but often. And God says, your turning will be towards your husband and he will rule over you. It's that same word that God says, take dominion over these things. Remember at the very beginning, God never told Adam to have dominion over the woman. God actually said, she's your equal. And then Adam decides to take dominion because that's all he knows. He didn't know how to be equal. And so he went back to dominion mode. But it doesn't say God wants Adam to rule over her. God simply says Adam will rule over her. And there's a big difference between what God wants and what guys do. Sometimes. Are we having fun yet? Where am I going with all this? Here's where I'm going. Last thing. Uh, Hi, Lisette. What's the last one I have on there? This. Genesis 3.20. Last thought. For some reason, after all of this has gone down, because Eve has not been Eve yet, Aaron has not been Aaron yet, she's still the woman. After all of this, the shame, the eating, the destruction, the, the blaming, the all of this stuff has gone on. Finally, it tells us that Eve gets her name, and Eve means the mother of the living. Why would Eve be named mother of the living after death had just been brought into the world, according to tradition, through her? And on the flip side of that, on the back side of all of that, she gets named the mother of the living. Man, I wish we had time to go there. So let me ask you this. Um, my sisters in here, our moms in here, our women in here, have any of you been in a time, a season, where you just really feel like you need to be reminded that you have a profound strength? Like there's just been things pushing back on you that you don't know where to find your strength, that you have nothing to offer, that you're looking for a way to make a dent, but you just don't feel like you have what it takes? Do any of our, our women resonate with that feeling? Can I just ask who that is? Just Can we have like kind of a vulnerable moment? If you feel like you've just forgotten the strength you have and you need a re- little reminder. Is anybody, can we pray with some of you? Would anybody like prayer? You could just be reminded that you are not a help meet. I'm sorry, by the way. Can I say that as a pastor, as a Bible person, whatever Bible person is? I'm sorry, sisters, moms, mom. I'm sorry for the way we've taken help meet and used that to have dominion over you because that's not right. And I say sorry on behalf of all guys. 
I do that to you, and I don't even realize I'm doing it, and I'm really sorry. 